Welcome to Speaking in Spoons with your host, Christina Brookman. My name is Christina Brookman, and I am disabled. I'm a self-advocate, a disability advocate, and host of Speaking in Spoons, a chronically ill podcast. And I'm here today to speak about self-advocacy. So let me uh, transition to a little presentation I have. So I've titled this Speaking in Spoons um, because of my podcast, Speaking in Spoons, a chronically ill podcast. Um, I have, I started with invisible disability um, and that has progressed to visible disability. I have chronic illnesses and rare disorders. So it's been quite a battle um, and quite a journey and continues to be. Getting a diagnosis, I think, can be um, one of the most difficult things for people with disabilities, um, especially um, chronic disabilities, um, rare disorders. Oftentimes, um, what we think of as rare disorders, um, there are quite a lot of people out there that have them. It's just they're um, misunderstood. And so I had to learn a bunch of things um, on my journey of getting diagnosed that I'd like to share with you. Um, I truly believe that self-advocacy is education. It is about educating yourself. It is about educating others about your disorders um, and also helping the world um, understand not just about your disorders, but about your needs. That's educating them as well to your needs and advocacy. Um, so whenever I go to a new doctor, I have a new doctor packet. Um, I make a timeline. I'm, I'm extremely OCD. You'll learn from this. But I make a timeline of my symptoms. You know, when did I start feeling things? You know, at what age? And um, maybe if I notice anything happening around it, a lot of doctors will ask you to do this. So this is something I learned to create, but also um, by the time I got to a geneticist, um, I, I took what I did for the geneticist and then applied it to all of my other new doctors moving forward because it really helped me um, with the geneticist. So. Um, the timeline of your symptoms, and then also separately break down your symptoms by body system, um, cardiovascular, uh, neurological, um, endocrinological, uh, and this is one of my symptoms, difficulty speaking and uh, brain fog sometimes, but um, you know, your endocrine system, are you having hot flashes? Things like that. And you may separate it and put it in the wrong category. And that's totally okay because it's 
create your own category. So whatever works for you to help communicate to your doctor what you are experiencing. And I think this can also really help uh, parents um, of children or um, adults that are on the spectrum um, and you know, parents of children on the spectrum. I was talking to a woman the other day whose grandson who she cares for is autistic and um, the way he um, feels things and then describes how he feels things at first didn't quite make sense to her until she understood, uh, got a little bit more detail, but it's helping break that down. Once she understood, oh, it, it feels like I'm being pulled um, through gravity. She, the doctor helped her understand he was feeling all of the sensory, you know, of his stomach moving, you know? So kind of just breaking down those things helps your doctor understand you and your experience. And don't forget, you know your body better than anybody. Um, the next thing I created was a caretaker cheat sheet. Um, and I keep that with me. I have it in my purse. So no matter where I am, there's a copy with me. Right now, I live with uh, on the second floor at my mom's. I've got one posted on the second floor in my room and the other room up here. I've also got it on the fridge downstairs for her or for the EMTs whenever they have to be called. And on that cheat sheet, it's got my name, my birth date, and my address. It's got my medical power of attorney and my emergency contacts name and numbers. It lists my conditions. It lists my doctor's names, the condition they treat me for, and their number. Um, it lists you know, uh, instructions for the ambulance, like uh, hospital preference, things like that. Um, it lists all of my medication and allergies, alphabetical order, so that's two separate things. Um, allergies and the reaction, and then your list of medications in alphabetical order, name, dose, and the reason you take it. Because a lot of people for medications, you know, it may have an FDA, um, this is what it's used for. But let's say like gabapentin, it is a seizure medication. It is also a pain medication and it is also a mood stabilizer. So it's very important that they know why you take this medication because they could just assume that you take it and have a condition that you don't. Um, also your medication schedule, um, the time and the dose and keep that alphabetical as well. Um, and preferred pharmacy. And you're like, Christina, this is really, really OCD, but this has saved me. Um, and it's also my doctors and my nurses love it uh, because it really helps them when I go there. You know, I have like 12 to 14 medications. So this way they're not like looking at just like a paragraphs of blobs of stuff, they can immediately see things and it's organized and it helps them help me because they have very limited time to see me. So if you're helping them, you know, ease up some of that time, then you're getting better quality of care as well. And that's you advocating for yourself.
Um, I also do a special sheet of a list of special instructions for in case of emergency, like with my migraines, um, like I said, it looks weird. So I do have an emergency pill that can be given to me. I also don't regulate my body temperature, which is part of my POTS or dysautonomia. It's also part of the migraine. I have ice hats. They look like little blue Smurf hats and we keep them in the freezer. So letting people know ahead of time, hey, if I start not being able to talk, if I'm if I'm red, if I'm looking a little funny, go get a, an ice hat, put it on me. Um, maybe elevate my feet. Ask me yes or no questions. Because with yes or no questions, I can do thumbs up. I can do thumbs down, even if I can't talk for myself. You know, um, that's what I've worked for myself. Thumbs up, thumbs no system. People that care for me know if I can't do thumbs up or thumbs down, that's when you call the ambulance. If I'm still able to do this, I'm good. Um, but if I can't, that's when you call the ambulance. So giving them those tools to help you um, helps make sure that you get taken care of the way you need to be and want to be, and that you're a part of that process even when you can't be. Um, make sure you have an evac emergency evacuation plan. Um, this was something I hadn't thought of until my friend, who's a part of emergency um, plans in um, in Richmond was like, Christina, do you have an emergency evacuation plan? You're on the second floor. And I was like, oh, that's a problem. Um, you know, so coming up with those systems, uh, when we didn't have the uh, chairlift working, we were like jerry-rigging different ways to get me things up to the second floor and down. You know, if I have to sit on my bum and scoot down, or there were oftentimes I would be up here for weeks at a time, you know, and people would have to bring things up to me and bring things back down. Um, and I was like, man, like we could really use a dumb waiter at this point. Um, get to know your neighborhood firehouse. If you have um, any, uh, different kind of conditions. And I say different because I have different kind of conditions, but you know, with anything, if you need specialized care, it's always a good idea to go talk to your local firehouse and apprise them of the situation. Say, I have these really strange looking migraines. It looks like I'm having a stroke, but it's not. And here's um, what you need to do in this kind of situation. Um, things like that. So here's kind of a list of um, most of my diagnoses. And as you can see, I started getting diagnosed at the age of 15 with fibromyalgia. And then 10 years, I got two more diagnoses. And 10 years later, I was diagnosed with a genetic disorder called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, type three, it's hypermobile type, um, which actually Ehlers-Danlos getting kind of in the news more recently, Miss Virginia has Ehlers-Danlos a couple years back. Um, there are types that are rare. My type, however, is not rare. Um, it is much more common than people think it is. However, people don't know about it. Um, we don't have, we have very few doctors um, that 
know about it and you usually have to leave your state to find out about it or get proper care, um, which causes its own difficulties. Um, so that again, that's why I truly believe advocacy is education. Um, and then if you look, I I was kept getting diagnoses and diagnoses up till I was 33, and then it stopped again. Um, and uh, apparently I can't do my math because I said 10 year gap, but um, it is only a, let's see if I can do math right now, a five year gap um, until I got my next, um, but that was a big amount of time for me. And that's when I found out the misdiagnosis of uh, pseudo seizures. I was misdiagnosed with pseudo seizures when I was 31 um, and told it was all in my head. Um, and it was in my head. It was neurological though, um, not psychological like they told me. Um, I have hemiplegic migraines. Although the the migraine specialist is thinking it, it may be mums, which is very, very similar to hemiplegic migraines. Um, but the reason we know it's migraine is migraine treatments work on me. It's still very difficult to treat. It's in no way perfect, but I'm not paralyzed all day, every day, which I was a year ago. Um, but it's going to be a lifelong thing. And that's something a lot of uh, patients with invisible disability, with chronic illnesses, with rare disorders, and particularly women are told it's all in your head. Um, and it's unfortunate because you can't get the right treatment if you're not getting the proper diagnosis. And we do have a horrible um, stigma of mental health and invisible disability mental health in our country. Um, so it's not about, um, it's twofold. When you're diagnosed with a mental health issue, when in fact it's a physical issue, you're not getting proper care, but also you're getting mistreated because a lot of patients um, and having been misdiagnosed with um, it being psychosomatic, you're extremely mistreated. And I was mistreated for many, many years and had to fight and keep trying to get other people to look at me. So I was finally properly diagnosed. Um, I do wanna let you know, it is okay to do your own ho homework. A lot of people are afraid of being considered a hypochondriac, but the internet has changed and has grown. You know, um, there are great resources on the internet to find out about things you've been diagnosed with, but also to research symptoms you're having and kind of glean, could I possibly have this? And look, check out support groups, check out foundations, talk to an advocate at a foundation. That's how I found out I had Ehlers-Danlos was I called their national foundation and told them all of my symptoms. And they said, yes, you should see a geneticist. And then I researched who's the best geneticist to see. And I was very fortunate at the time I lived just three or four hours from Cincinnati Children's where um, 
Dr. Brad Tinklewerk, who's internationally renowned um, for Ehlers-Danlos hypermobile type uh, research. Um, so it's okay to do your own homework. It's impossible for doctors to know all about every single condition. It's just physically impossible. Um, and make sure you have a doctor who listens. They do exist. What I hear from doctors and other people, you're too young to have all this. There are babies in the NICU and children in the cancer ward. I am not too young. It's just muscle skeletal pain. Never assume. You or your doctors don't assume. Just to let you know, and I'll tell you more about this coming up, but I had six loose screws in my neck. Six. And I kept being told it was just muscle pain. It's in your head. Just because they don't know the answer and haven't had the test or haven't found the test yet, doesn't mean that it's psychoschematic. Make sure everything is ruled out. You're complex. Yes, I am complex. So are millions of people. You should see someone who specializes in this. If I saw a doctor who specialized in each of my disorders, different parts of my body would live in multiple states. And that is why we have to work with our doctors as a team and find ones that are willing to learn and talk to each other. We're understaffed and we have too many patients. I completely understand and empathize with doctors and nurse practitioners understaffed and having too many patients, especially the traveling physicians and nurse practitioners, because I had that um, this year. And I had to stop one of my nurse practitioners because I wasn't getting the care that I needed. And she came in and she didn't realize that I used the wheelchair because she didn't talk about patient history. She didn't do a thorough exam during her examination. She didn't communicate. The nurse practitioner teams weren't communicating with each other or reading each other's notes. But also my wheelchair was right by the front door that she walked through to come to my room. And I had a rollator there as well and my cane. She had absolutely no idea. So I stopped her and I said, I, I get this and I empathize with you and I can respect that. But also this is your job. It's your job to know these things. This is my life. So I have to stand up for myself. I have to advocate for myself. And I'm not a bad person for asking for the things that I need and making sure that that I am that those things happen and that I am being taken care of the way I should be. And this is your life. So it's okay that you do too. Just like you would a car or a house, make sure that your doctor is the right fit for you. Again, this is your life. There are more zebras out there than we think. You're not alone. Return to Cinder. Um, I uh, have to joke about a lot of the things that have happened in my life because that's how I cope. Um, but about 10 years ago, I um, was left by my husband at my mom's. Um, 
I had no money. <laughs> I had no doctors. I had his insurance for uh, the year of separation, um, but then it was gone. But also we had lived in Ohio and now I was in Virginia. So I was left at my mom's with nothing. And I had a true lack of community support system. Um, just like in Field of Dreams, <laughs> build your support system, good things will follow. And I know that's cheesy, but I like to think that. Um, what makes up your support system? Family, friends, medical team, and community resources. Um, a lot of people with disabilities, and the more I talk to other people with disabilities, you know, I'm realizing I'm not alone and that a lot of people, well, uh, people are frequently left by a partner when they become sick or disabled. There's a very, very high percentage of that, unfortunately. Um, but also, um, not everybody has family. Um, or friends, you know, when I found myself in a new town, I had friends, but it was friends that I hadn't talked to in years or seen, and they built their own lives and their own uh, things, and they were busy, and a lot of them had kids, um, and, you know, having kids is a full-time job, um, and then, you know, um, I am an only child, so I didn't have siblings um, that could help, Um and my family was not very close. And uh, my father did not live close. He actually moved right around that same time to the other side of the state. Um, and my mom has uh, a lot of my conditions are genetic. So um, she, I was very, very lucky to have a roof and help with food. Um, but getting on the phone and, um, finding those resources was not something my mom could do. And so that became something I had to do in order to survive. Um, what I found was DLCV. Um, first I went to Zars. I was determined to try to work and they actually closed my case. It was closed in Ohio and then closed again here. Um, and my counselor here told me, Christina, you need to find Elizabeth Bourne. Um, and so I sought her out and she was at DLCV and still is. And she fought for me. And I also learned a lot from her, which was wonderful. It was wonderful to kind of learn about the process. And um, I know I harassed too, um, but uh, she she was always willing to uh, answer my questions and explain things. Cause I'm one of those people, the nerd that I am, the more information I have, the more empowered I feel and the, the, the calmer I feel. Um, and uh, it's information that uh, I learned through that process that I help my friends uh, that I've met online and other places through there. And I also continue to send friends um, and people that I meet to DLCV, to Elizabeth and um, other resources. Um, and I'm actually still with DARS, um, which I'll tell you a little bit more about later. Um, also was a client of DBVI 
um, because I am visually impaired. Um, resources for independent living, um, which I've gone to, um, and then uh, social services, you know, SNAP, Feed More, Meals on Wheels, churches, um, Virginia Housing Authority and HUD. We really, um, we are in a housing crisis, but those that are on disability um, and have been in poverty um, outside of disability know we have been in a housing crisis for very long time, um, which uh, I'm very fortunate to have had my mom to go back to, but I'm starting to create my plan for my future of where can I go? Because I um, negotiated housing for myself um, at a, a apartment complex um, that knocked down their rate for me um, because they had accessible units and I was on disability. However, they got new ownership a year ago. Um, I had to leave and sleep on friends' sofas um, and then eventually wound up back at my mom's. Uh, till further notice. The Butcher of Pakistan, um, or Dr. Durrani. Um, this was my spinal surgeon back when I lived in Ohio. Um, he is a fugitive. He is charged with healthcare fraud, false statements related to healthcare matters, mail fraud, and illegal drug distribution. Um, he told me that my neck was so unstable that if I were to get in a car accident, I could get an internal decapitation and die. Um, so I got my neck fused. Come to find out later, my neck is actually congenitally fused from the skull, the base of my skull to the first vertebrae. Um, so as my most recent surgeon has told me, my neck was going nowhere. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, I actually, well, let me start at the beginning. Uh, he was recommended to me by um, internationally renowned geneticist working at a top tier children's hospital, along with the dental dentist who specialized in cranial instability with Ehlers-Danlos and TMJ. Um, both said I was at the point of needing surgery and he was the person to go to. So I trusted him, um, trusted both of them. And that made me trust him. Um, but this uh, goes to my point in that doctors are fallible. Doctors are human. Um, and this surgeon actually lied to the medical board. So it's very, very important to get multiple um, opinions. Don't just go see one surgeon, see at least three before any surgery. I have learned that lesson the hard way. Uh, he had a dog in his office <laughs> uh, and was that was honestly one of the, he was one of the kindest doctors that I've ever met. I, I never saw it coming. Um, I was desperate for help because of pain. And I think people will, um, people do desperate things when they're in pain um, and will listen to any kind of, you know, 
anything out there. And we really have to take a step back and breathe and protect ourselves and find ways to breathe through the pain um, because we don't want to allow ourselves to be taken advantage of. I think it's very easy as someone with a disability, a chronic illness to be um, taken advantage of um, because um, we so desperately want not to be in pain. We want it to be quote unquote normal or live normal lives, happy lives. Uh, what, you know, there's a grieving process that comes with disability, grieving the life you thought that you would have. If you're somebody who becomes disabled later in life um, or, you know, uh, for parents uh, with disabled children, it's not grieving, it's grieving. Um, you're still also grieving those things that you envision for yourself as a grandparent, or maybe watching your child walk across a stage at graduation or prom or getting married, just like we grieve those things for ourselves. Um, so, um, and it's, um, and it's because this world is not yet built to uh, accommodate uh, people with disabilities yet. We've made huge strides, but there's still lots to be done. My uh, surgery was in 2012 in Ohio. When I was returned to sender um, in 2013 in Virginia, I continued to have pain. So I asked for images of my neck. And all my doctors said no in Virginia. Local neurologists have a, an agreement that if you see one, you cannot see another. Um, and I was like, well, this, um, I'm not liking the care that I'm getting with this neurologist. I think it's absolutely okay for me to be able to seek a second opinion, if not a third or a fourth. But because of this agreement, I, I faced a lot of um, heat trying to do that. Um, and I still know people that uh, have that problem themselves. But I got three different hospitals to break that rule so I could get different opinions um, because it just wasn't working. And I said, this, this physician is not working for me. I'm not working for them. I need to be able to see another doctor and get another opinion. Um, and it's it's not about going in, you know, with hatred or or anger. It's it's going and trying to talk to them about what you need, and and just making clear, it's not unreasonable to ask for a second opinion, and to deny you that I think is actually unreasonable. I had to go on medical leave from grad school uh, a year ago. Um, I, I tried to go back to grad school to pursue my MSW, to be a medical social worker with children. Um, but my neck pain uh, started up really bad. I went to the ER and was told it was just muscle skeletal and to take ibuprofen. Pain management kept sending to me the ER. ER kept sending me back to pain management. I finally got an MRI and was told it was all okay, despite the fact that my fusion was blocking their view. When you have um, metal back there, you have to get a CT in order to get the view that they need to see if anything's wrong. I finally got a CT because I kept pushing. 
And I, I, you know, I was like, you're not going to get rid of me. Something's going on. Um, two loose screws in my neck. I went to three different surgeons before I found one willing to operate. All the other surgeons were hesitant because of my youth, um, which is what they said. I don't feel young, but because of my youth and the complexities of my conditions. Um, but Dr. Scheimer at UVA agreed. He said, as long as you understand that this may not um, like reverse your pain or stop your pain, I'm okay and I'll do it. And I was like, will it prevent me from damage, like further damage? And he said, yes. And I said, then I'm okay with it. I was like, as long as I know up front that I may continue to live in lifelong pain, but I will prevent further damage, let's get all that out. That's the safe thing to do. Um, and I also felt violated having that in my body. I felt extremely violated. Um, he removed six loose screws. So it wasn't just two, there were six. And he said that two were so loose, he was afraid during surgery, they would touch my spine. They would bump into my spinal column and cause paralysis. So he said, thank God we did that surgery. Checking out AMA or the great escape, as I like to call it. This happened last summer. I was in a, I ended up going to the ER because of a hemiplegic migraine. I had stroke-like symptoms uh, that wouldn't stop. So my roommate, um, we called 911, um, went to the ER, uh, I was admitted. I was also having a really bad trigeminal neuralgia episode, just really painful. Um, and they couldn't, usually when I get the migraine cocktail, I can walk within 15 minutes, but um, it didn't work. I stayed for a week um, and then all of a sudden, and they're like, you have a fever um, and we think you have shingles and that's what your pain is. And I was like, shingles, but I don't have a rash. Um, and uh, they actually um, put, um, all, everybody had to wear, like, you know, when you watch those movies, when there's like an outbreak, everybody had to wear like full, um uniforms and all this stuff like to protect themselves and they limited the people that could come in and out of my room um uh the funny thing is i did not have shingles i was right but it because the doctor had misdiagnosed me um i had to wait like three days um for the test results to come back and i kept asking and asking and i was in pain but it it made my care not as good because I was, um, they couldn't send as many people in and out and they had, because they had to change every time they went in and out. And they were also low on nurses, particularly, um, night shift, night shift and weekends is always like the worst time to go to the hospital. Um, and, and I was like, something is going on. Like my jaw, I woke up 
morning and my jaw was just killing me and it felt like it was swelling. So I talked to the doctor and I told the nurses and um, the doctor's like, well, you know, it's probably your TMJ. I was like, yes, I have TMJ. Um, she's like, well, um, okay, it's probably your TMJ. It'll be fine. Um, a couple hours later, I was still in excruciating pain. And I was like, I know I'm on narcotics. That <laughs> I should not be feeling my TMJ right now. Um, so I asked for the nurse. I was like, I need a second opinion. Well, they, I was like, can I get a CT? Do you have any oral, if it is TMG, can anybody, TMJ, can anybody look at it? They didn't, this particular hospital didn't have anybody that would be able to look at it or the machines to really be able to look at it. And I was like, well, can you send me to the hospital in town that does so I can get, you know, a second opinion? And she's like, no, cause it's just your TMJ. We'll wait and later we'll do an, you know, image when, that machine like opens up. Um, here's a uh, lozenge. And I was like, huh? Um, she literally gave me a lozenge to put in the inside of my mouth, like right in here, um, you know, because of the menthol. And she said the menthol, you know, will help. Well, it just got worse and worse and worse. Um, and so like I even called... I called 911 because I did, I was so desperate. I was in so much pain. I hadn't slept in two nights. I'd actually, um, I have incontinence issues and I had um, wet myself um, in the past two nights, no one had changed me. Um, so I would go the whole night in excruciating pain and not and late in, in my own urine. Um, and no one would change me because they were so short staffed. So I called 911 because I said, um, I need help. I couldn't get the social workers to talk to me. I'd page for them. I called them. I even had uh, my power of attorney emailing them during the day, trying to get them to come and visit me or talk to me. I was there for five days. Um, but during like this, like, they just didn't visit. They wouldn't call to my room. They wouldn't talk to me. So that's when I called 911 and I said, I'm being held against my will. And um, so I was um, eventually I had a friend pick me up and I left AMA or against medical advice, which Fortunately, I did not have to pay for, but a lot of people do end up having to pay for because their insurance won't cover it if your doctor's orders are for you to stay. It could have also been that I did threaten to sue and I kept calling, you know, and asking for my bill to be, um, uh, you know, cut because I was like, this was absolute ridiculous care. Um but my friend picked me up and took me to another hospital in town um, where they immediately diagnosed it as an abscess. That was me when it was looking good. Um, I was like a chipmunk and it swelled up. Um, oh, here's all my notes. That would have been helpful. <laughs> it was very painful. But as soon as they diagnosed it, they drained it um, and kept me overnight on a pain medicine drip 
and an antibiotic drip. He said, I don't know how you survived this long without pain, medica pain medication. But when you are a chronic pain patient, you have a very high pain tolerance. And it's also your body will do amazing things when it's in that extreme amount of pain. Um, you can survive even when you think you can't. Um, and uh, they drained the abscess, but it was so bad. And they pulled the tooth that a week later, I kept having to go back like two times because they almost had to um, drain my neck. My trip down the stairs. So um, I live now, um, like I said, on a second floor and I have a um, chair um, that I ride up and down. But when I go into paralysis, we had to call you know, an ambulance to come and take me to the hospital. And the first time that happened, when they came, you know, I'm dead weight. Um, they dropped me down the stairs and then one of them fell on top of me. And then I kept having nightmares and um, flashbacks to it to the point where I did not want anybody to send me uh, to the hospital um, while I was living here on the second floor. Um, but it got to that point where it was really bad again. Um, and, uh, my loved ones pled with me and they're like, you know, and I finally, you know, um, just let them, uh, call the ambulance and the people that arrived, um, denied having that I was dropped the first time. They invalidated my experience, not just my experience, but those of my family um, and my boyfriend at the time um, who had watched in horror as I was dropped down the stairs. And that was very scary for them as well. Um, they also wouldn't let anybody come on the ambulance with me. And when I'm like that, I can't speak. And my eyes also... Um, a spasm shut so I can't see um so after all of this I ended up um calling the firehouse and reported the issue I was going to look at legal steps to take but I realized that for my own peace of mind I it wasn't about money I want to make sure this never ever happens to another person or their family again. Um, and I what and I and I really felt like it was about education because they were um they need to look at how they're taking somebody down the stairs. They also need to look at how the professionalism of how they speak with family during events like this. And also as someone that can't speak or see, um to advocate for myself, I absolutely am allowed to have somebody ride in the vehicle with me. There's no reason to not have somebody there. Um, so um, I was able to speak to the people in charge and um, make sure that, um, that I was heard and my family was heard in hopes that this would not happen again. 
So the podcast, advocacy, and the future. Um, so here's some Christina-isms, which I may have already thrown in, but things I've learned um, that I, in being disabled um, and in self-advocating, you have to learn to be your own best friend. You are with yourself more than anyone else, 24 hours a day from birth to death. You must become your own cheerleader because there will be times when you don't have anyone else. Never apologize for asking for what you need, for advocating to protect yourself and find answers. Surround yourself with people who believe in you. You will lose people, but the good ones stay. Go, going to counseling is a sign of strength, not weakness. Prepare your child with a disability to advocate for themselves so they can when they're an adult. Don't approach every situation as a battle. Stay calm, ask questions, present your needs. But don't be afraid of confrontation if necessary. Learn as you go and pivot, as my friend and co-host Nate would say, you know, adapt. We have peaks and we have valleys. Enjoy the good times when you are in a valley. And in, when you are in a valley, remember a good day will eventually come. Find your mantra. Always remind yourself of the worst thing that you have lived through. You survived that. Everything else seems easy. Just because you're homebound doesn't mean you can't socialize. Have Zoom parties and movie nights with your friends. I watch horror movies with people via Zoom. It's hysterical and it helps you forget all the stress and other things you're living through. Join support groups. Just know when to leave when it becomes too negative. There are good people out there that want to help. Seek them out. And then this is what I want to do. I want to help others like I have been helped. You know, like DLCV and DARS, resources for independent living and some of my caseworkers, you know. Um, I'm working on getting my MSW, hopefully. I'm studying to become a board certified patient advocate and continue with this podcast. I'm getting to interview people that have disabilities to give them a platform to share their story. And also with like quote unquote experts in the field um, to talk about certain topics. Like we've had someone from Disability Law Center come and talk about nursing homes and assisted living facilities. We're gonna have someone come on about voting. Um, we've had um, pain um and acceptance all kinds of things um and what is disability so um i wrote this the other day and on facebook and i wanted to share it with you um because it's kind of like my reflection that i think applies here but um while i can be frustrated at individuals and organizations what i take from my experiences is that individuals with disabilities will only get the care they need when change happens at a systemic level. No individual or organization sets out to make it harder for people with disabilities or to destroy their lives. In fact, quite the opposite. The lack of funding, training, and staff make it impossible for them to do what they set out and promised to do. If we want our loved ones, ourselves, to have even basic resources like housing, 
food, transportation, phone, insurance. We cannot sit back and complain. We have to be a part of making change happen. Volunteer, write organizations and share your insight and experience. Go to the Hill, write your representatives. Change can only truly happen if those with disabilities and their loved ones involve themselves in the process. You are not alone. You may feel alone sometimes, but you're not alone. You are a warrior, you are an X-Men. And I, I love this picture of a demon with a little girl. And it says, you wake up every morning to fight the same demons that left you so tired the night before. And that, my love, is bravery. This is our season two title for Speaking in Spoon podcast. You can learn more about the podcast and what uh, I'm working on at www.speakinginspoons.com. Thank you uh, for having me. And we're back. Uh, this is your host, Christina Brookman and Dr. Nate Strauss for Hello. our after party. Um, hey, Nate, so you've known me for a while. So like you said, a lot of these stories, like you knew, but um, some of it well, was yeah. new. So what do you think? Well, you told me the hospital stories, so I knew about all that, but I didn't know about the what you did to prep for doctors and stuff and all that timeline stuff. I don't, I don't do that. So if people don't, like, it's not something you have to do. And I don't know, making things easier for doctors was never been my prerogative, but <laughs> for some people it, I think it helps. And it also helps to kind of lay out so you can keep it straight in your own mind. Yeah. Um, I think it also really helped once I started having caretakers um, it really helped like having that cheat sheet with basically all the questions that EMTs would ask if they came or like once I got to the hospital, what they would want to know, like my name, my birth date, my address, and then like all, like all of that stuff really helped caretakers because I was shocked how little of that they were actually given. Like they're supposed to have like a care, a care plan but half the time they don't have a care plan and then when they do have a care plan it's very limited and like when i'm having some of these symptoms it's scary for someone who's never seen it before like the more acclimated they get to it you know but even family members like it scares them because they're worried i'm having a stroke they don't it's a lot of pressure on someone to be completely responsible for someone that can't talk for themselves um, so I was trying to find a way to ease their anxiety too. If I even overly prepare them, it, you know, maybe that would help some of the burden, I guess, was my thought behind that. No, it makes sense to do it. I just, I just don't, I don't know. I personally don't want to do it, but just like I said, like our viewers, or listeners or whatever we call them, like. It's obviously a personal choice of whether you want to do it. And I think it's a time saver in the long run. If you see multiple doctors or you see like you have a doctor and then you have to switch doctors, like it's just an easy thing to have in your roster or your tool belt. 
Just easy to, I don't know. I thought that made sense. And then that horrible story about your hospital visit, which was, it's, it's I don't even blame the nurses. It's just, they're overworked and underpaid and it just. They really are. And they actually, one of the nurses towards the end, he's like, you need to get out of here. And the hospital that I did end up going to was the one he was like, you need to go to this hospital. And I was like, yeah, that's what I've been thinking. And he's like, you're not wrong, but I didn't tell you that, you know? Right. Um, he's like, you need to get out. Um, he's like, something's not right and you need to get out. Um, and I really um, have a lot of respect for him for, you know, saying that to me because he was genuinely concerned about my safety and my care. You know, right? It's re and they're real. They're real people. It's not like they're monsters or anything like no. that. Real people caught in a system that just doesn't have people first. Exactly. Well, and does like you said, doesn't have enough workers right now. Like they were already, particularly nurses, understaffed pre-COVID, and then with COVID happening, the medical system lost a lot of doctors. Like a lot of doctors retired early there's a lot less people going into the field and there's a lot, there aren't enough nurses. Um, and it's, it's easy for mistakes to get made. Um, but that's why you have to be so adamant about standing up for yourself, you know, and, and not just assume that because they are doctors or nurses or people in a professional setting that, they're perfect you know everybody they're human everybody makes mistakes right and they don't have all the answers or sometimes they don't have any answers and it's not their yeah. fault yeah their education or lack thereof well and we're not and you've mentioned this too before that um i think in an episode we're going to be posting soon and other ones but the science just isn't there for a lot of these things like we think of ourselves as modern but science for medicine a lot of it is very very new um yeah well that gets into a lot of theory and basis of theory on you know application and just you get on this rabbit hole and you realize that a lot of stuff was is based on assumption and not actual like scientific evidence and it's all just uh, it's just all just lost to me on a lot of stuff that we do and I, I which is what but brings me to your to part of your topic was like I do think we need to start writing our congressmen about changing our medical system because it's broken like even if everyone got health care universal health care was approved tomorrow we're still approved for a system that is just it's lame it's just it's it's ill-equipped and it's just it's it's dogmatic and um ignorant and like i do think regenerative medicine is the future of medicine and like i know it's getting a lot of pushback in this country because a lot of industry stands to lose out if that becomes the forefront of how we treat people but i do think that working with the body makes more sense than attacking it
What, um, for those out there that are not familiar with regenerative medicine, could you get a little bit, well, like give us a little bit more of a specific? The one, the one I'm talking about is, is stem cell therapy, which I do think holds a lot of power. But I mean, stem cell therapy is going through a lot of trial and error. And for a long time, we emphasized embryological stem cells like you'd see in like South Park and and in the news about using fetal stem cells and like aborted right. babies and stuff but that's just not what present day stem cell treatment is it's it's at the closest is to a child it's it's um umbilical cord stem cells but they they pulled them from fat tissue and at and um, just like places in the body that you just every, everywhere has got stem cells. When you were telling me embryonic like um, stem cells aren't actually um, helpful in that sense, like that's why. Well, so it's a misunderstanding or something. Well, that's what I've heard that embryological stem cells have been shown to be rather useless. They, they want to become babies. And so when you put them inside yourself, they try to become a baby. So you end up with a tumor because you got embryological stem cells. But if you get a stem cell that's meant to be like a helper, like um, like uh, umbilical cord, amniotic, um, mesenchymal stem cells like that, just they they're support. They have a supportive role. They don't have like a, right. a growth role potent like they don't transform into other tissue well they, i think they do eventually but mostly they're they're there to um give out like messages and tell the other cells what to do and to trophic factors and all that kind of stuff like they're there to supply support we should and do I, an episode on this it's really interesting it's cool and that's why i think that's why i want to try to go to mexico because you can't get it here in the u.s and not because you can't get stem cell here in the u.s but because they're not allowed to grow it into the millions that they can do in places like mexico and south america and panama and, and india and to japan and like all these places they're allowed to do that but because of the laws here we can't grow them and i think that a lot of that is based around the propaganda that had to do with embryological stem cell that's interesting and possibly very very true um and i i do want to say that speaking in spoons um is not um um what's the word that i want to say like endorsing any type of oh, yeah. um, medicine or treatment or anything like that. We're just discussing possibilities because um, when you do this, uh, Nate has talked about like filming his experience um, and talking yeah. about it on the show, which I think could just be very educational, informative to all of us to learn about the experience. Well, what I like about it is that our kid, worst case scenario, it doesn't do anything. But there's no negative side effect other than the loss of a lot of money doing it. Right. So as much as I can temper that, I think there's really no cost to, to trying it. To and you get a great vacation, which I know was, like many of us don't get to do when we're sick. So, um, Well, it's just for like four days, though. So it's not really vacation. Hey, I would take four days take four days anywhere right now i would take That's one day a half a day um are you kidding me um but i would not, probably pick somewhere a lot cooler 
because you know me and my heat. Oh, well, yeah. You, I mean, you can get this kind of treatment in um, places in Norway, I think, or just in the that sort of area. Like, you can go to colder yeah. places to get it, too. It's not just South America is just the closest. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think we need to shake up um, the system. Um, but they're, and... they're just, stem cells, just the tip of the iceberg in regenerative medicine. There's T cell. Yeah. There's just like all kinds of like stuff that helps your body. Doesn't you know essentially poison you, which I but think even is. If a we lot got of all these things approved, and like you said, even if we had Medicare for all approved tomorrow or today like a lot of the things that are occurring right now like understaff and and training and and all of this stuff is like a big problem that I've had I I don't know if you've run into this is because one of the things I wanted to be as a social worker was a medical social worker the majority of medical social workers I have had haven't known how to help me um, like they have, I, I'm still having trouble getting a, um, what is it? A, uh, having trouble thinking today, but, um, a wheelchair that can transport chair, like the ones that you use in a doctor's office. It's a lot easier. There's a lot smaller, more compact, um, because the wheelchair I have is so comfortable, but it and it folds and stuff, but it's really heavy because it's so comfortable. It's built for me, but it's not built for the people that have to take me places. Um, so my mom can't fold that thing up and move it. So I need a transport chair. Nobody in the doctor's office knows how to get it. Um, I'm looking forward to going to my physical therapist. Because I next week, because I know they'll be able to do it. Because whenever I've gotten a wheelchair, they know how to do it. But the social worker has been giving me all this incorrect information. And I know it's incorrect. I just haven't had the energy and time to follow up on it because I've been dealing with other stuff. Um, but like I've had trouble with them helping me with housing, with like kind of anything. And housing is basically a non existent horrible issue here anyways but um other things that I've needed help with they've even given me just incorrect information and I can't imagine being a patient um they didn't know to look outside of that social worker or didn't have family member that could help them and to know to look outside and realize that information might be incorrect um because it's not really something that's part of like what is taught really in curriculum, a lot of what you learn in social work um, is really based, you know, in the psychology and the whole body and all of that stuff. And you learn the specifics of what you would be doing on a job in internship and thing like that. But if you're going to places where it's a continual problem of people not knowing the proper yeah, I, I just get blown away. And and my own, like, doctor, my current doctor, um, who teaches, um, was saying incorrect information about my disorders. And, and I was like, no. Um, like, she was going to send me to genetics for my POTS. And 
and POTS, um, there is a form of genetic POTS, but I was tested for that. And um, yeah, but it's, it's yeah. weird. It's scary. I'm talking in circles today and I apologize, but I'm going back to the fact that what you said is the system is broken and how do we, it seems kind of overwhelming. How do you even, what do you focus on first? How do you break it down? I don't know. Well, I mean, and in fear of sounding like a kook, I think that the way we interact with our medical care, like how we treat, I think is a bit flawed. Like I think there's there's two different ways to approach illness. One is changing, like attacking something, and the other is changing the environment of that person. Like I think, um, was it Florence Nightingale? Like she 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 did some sort of like where she helped troops. Like I think the way that she helped heal people in the hospital was not by fighting bacteria and viruses and stuff was more hygiene related. So it was just a healthier place to be. So less people got sick. And I think hospitals, I think, I mean, they've taken the hygiene thing to a, a new level, but I think they've missed out on the way that they treat, like everything's always antibiotic or um, chemo or uh, just attack, attack, attack. But I think what's nice about if I go back to the stem cell is what happens with the regenerative medicine is it's right. not about changing. It's not about killing something. It's about shif shifting how the body is like changing the terrain, terrain theory of how the body is itself. And, and by changing how the body, where the body is, the, the body itself will change its physiology to match it. Well, and, and going off that, how cool would it be if if medicine really became about not just the treating, but the preventative? Like we talk right. about that, but it right. doesn't really exist. And well, I think a big reason it doesn't exist is insurance doesn't really cover it. Um, and the system's not really built for preventative. Like it doesn't, right. it, there's no profit incentive to do it. Like if anything, it makes them have less money because people don't get sick and come to them for right. treatment. It's cynical to say that, and I don't think it's intentional. It's just the way it's set up. The incentive is to not be preventive, like to do the least amount of preventative care. Right. And I think a lot of doctors are waking up to that. That's why I have like functional doctors, and I think yeah, people are starting to realize like, hey, we're not like people first. And that's a real problem because we're just making the problem. Like you're yeah. saying, we don't have enough staff to deal with the, the COVID epidemic and, and th like the, the level of illness, like there's not enough staff to deal with it. And I think we're making that problem. Like there's too many people to treat because we're not treating them correctly in the first place. So they're just coming back like a revolving door. Yeah. Well, and like John, um, we're going to have an incredible guest in our next episode. Um, and he talks a lot about um, his relationships with doctors in the um, over the years that he's been an advocate um, and he's become close to some and and, uh, and that they feel, too, that they are banging their heads up against, you know, the system because there's only because it is a system of profit and they are limited in what they are allowed to do because of the overall, you know, the the powers that be above them 
Um, so yeah, I think sometimes as patients, we can feel like the system is out to get us or, you know, our doctors aren't helping us or not listening or, you know, but yeah. Then I just say it's, I don't think it's, it's intentional. Like there's not some. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's not an intentional indifference or intentional evil. Yeah. Like it's, it's just, it's the way the system's set up that it's just exactly. really cruel, but not meant to be cruel. Not intentionally. And that's, um, I think one of the things I talked about in there is like, there are not out like, like no, no institution, no company, no doctor, no nurse sets out to go, well, okay, there was that serial killer, but like, well, that's you know, one person in the system, one person, but they don't set out to be like, oh, I want to go into this, you know, profession to like make people's lives miserable. Hey, you like, know? how can I be evil today? Like, uh, yeah. yeah. But, um, but that's why, like I was saying, we can't just sit back and complain. We have to find a way to become a part of the process somehow. Like, like I've been volunteering. Um, I'm, I'm going to be on a board uh, for people of self-advocates at a hospital. I'm right. so excited about this um, to be able to kind of give input from people with disabilities or families you know, what we experience and kind of work with the hospital. And I think that's a great idea. And I, I hope this is something more hospitals and doctor's offices are doing. Um, and I'm so excited about this. And I mean, this is the kind of thing I want to do. I want to work in, you know, kind of helping all of this for the future. Yeah. And I think that, I think that says something, but I like, I want to help people too. Like that's the whole point of like going to Mexico. Like if it works, yeah. I want to bring that back here and advocate, you know, congressionally to get this sort of medicine approved. Cause I would exactly. love to friends get treated and I'm, I'll just be the guinea pig that goes to Mexico and does this crazy thing at, as, at a shockingly American run business in Mexico. <laughs> Just so it's ridiculous. Well, I was complaining to my mom about the FDA the other day, you know, and and I was like, you know, it's all in who pays off the FDA and everything. And she's like, it's not that bad, Christina. I was like, I know. I just I used to have this, you know, very naive picture of the FDA and 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 the way things are approved for for medicine and for also for um for technology medical technology and then i started watching documentaries and reading some reports and stuff and i had no idea a how little how um approve like how little goes into the approval process for technology it's kind of scary and that's why there's a lot of lawsuits and stuff because of people have been uh, used as guinea pigs basically on things that have been already approved by the FDA and that is just confounding to me um, and their lives have been destroyed and ruined um, but it's also it's because the technology moves faster than the approval process you know um, because we're just moving and moving at a speed so it's like I don't know what the solution is but you know there is the case like with you know the opioids where there there is the incentives 
there was the incentives for that guy in the approval process getting, you know, um, to be a part of things at Pfizer. And that's, that is corporate and that is money. And that is scary to me that we're putting that first in, inside of people's lives. I, I just, I don't understand that. And I know a lot of people work that way. Um, I just can't imagine putting money before in my own career, anything before other people's lives. To me, that is evil. Yeah, but not intentional. Well, capitalist kind of evil. Capitalist. Like it's, yeah. it's not morally evil. It's just like... Isn't it, though? Isn't to it? Per, to per profit over people? I mean, I guess you could you could say that. Your own personal profit over the lives of other people. Yeah, I think that is evil. It's selfish and evil. But that's it's just me. Definitely selfish. And just, it's a bit... I just think it all feeds back into itself. And when we put profit over people, it comes back to bite us because yeah. it just end up with just like so many sick people. And I think that's the reason why there are so many sick people today, because for decades, we've just put money first and people have just been getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And it's all just now our hospitals are overloaded and people are just waiting in the rafters for treatments that don't really work. And yeah. It's just co-factors. Well, I'm I'm hopeful. Um, I'm hopeful that something good comes out of Mexico for you, and I'm looking forward to seeing the process. Don't, and don't jinx it. We'll see. I mean, it. We'll, yeah, we'll see what happens. If I, anything, I, it'll be a good vacation. It'll be a nice, and we'll place. learn more about stem cells. And I'll get to live stream, which I haven't ever done. Hey, and maybe we can get um, Michael J. Fox uh, interested in whatever's happened down there. It worked, I gave you his contact. Yeah. We could contact him if it worked. Or he yeah. maybe sent him the episode. Yeah. Who knows? Well. Thought, yeah. Well, anyway, that's. We'll, we'll see what happens with all that. On that note, though. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about or you think that sums it up? Well, it was the best part of your talk was the self-advocacy thing and writing people. And I think regenerative medicine is one thing, but I think people also need to start talking and, you know, speaking out about all the stuff that's gone wrong in the medical. Cause I didn't know at the beginning of all this 20 years ago when I first got sick or 14 years ago when I first got sick, but I just, I had no idea. I trusted my doctors. I trusted the medical system. And it's not that I don't trust it now. It's just, I have so much less trust. Yeah. And I, I wish it wasn't that way. Me too. Me too. And on that note, I went in with lots of trust and yeah. Yeah. You take advantage of it. Well, um, thank you guys for listening and we hope you will go out and write your congressman and get involved and um, in any way that you can, like as little or as lots as you can, because even just a little is a whole lot right now. So um, thank you for listening and we look forward to uh, seeing you soon on our next episode. Um, about the Connective Tissue Coalition um, 
and uh, save your spoons. Bye. If you want to contact us, please send a DM or email to speakinginspoons at gmail.com. With any stories you have, or would like to interview with us on any of our upcoming topics. And check out our website for all of our upcoming episodes and what's happening in the Speaking in Spoons community at www.speakinginspoons.com. Thank you for listening to Speaking in Spoons, and have a great day. Uh -huh.